Blog Talk Radio. your host, Sherry Ann Turpin, and you are tuned into At the Edge Think Culture. This is season two, um, after a long summer and fall break, we are back for the winter, and this is our show. Um, so tonight, we're going to have a guest here, and um, her name is Amanda Huron. Dr. Huron um, is a professor of interdisciplinary social sciences, and she's got a lot to say tonight um, about her new book that is out. And you'll give me a second. I'm going to bring her on right now. Good evening, it's Miss Amanda. It is. Hello, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. 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 It's, uh, I could never really get used to four o'clock being evening, but as we I know, right? Do, yeah, it's 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 in the evening. So, um, uh, my audience out there, um, we are on live, and if you'd like to call in. Um, so listen, if you'd like to call in and um, ask questions and get into the conversation, um, guests can call in at 646-668-2362. Um, again, that's 646-668-2362. So you are my second guest for Season 2 uh, for Think Culture. And looking at what you have um, brought to us, um, it's a rarity when I see books that actually focus on the people of Washington, D.C. And so your book, Carving Out the Commons, um, hits, hits us right in the heart and talks about um, talks about living, being here, what does it mean to live here? Um, and so to give, an, give the audience um, a sense of who you are and how you got to this place um, as, a, as a researcher, as a scholar, as a teacher, um, could you tell us a bit about you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So about me, I uh, <clears throat> I was born and, and raised in D.C. in Washington, um, in uh, a neighborhood a neighborhood called Mount Pleasant, which is um, which is sort of a centrally located neighborhood in the city. I don't know how uh, international the listenership might be, so I just want to make sure folks know kind of where we're talking about here. Um, and so this is, um, and I've lived, I've moved away other places for school and come back and for work and come back and stuff, but, um, but D.C. is really my home. And so I, I've been interested in the city just, you know, since I was a kid growing up here. Um, and then in terms of um, the sort of specific work looking at questions of housing in the city, um, I really, I, I, the neighborhood that I grew up in, um, really sort of has gone through a couple of different uh, phases of gentrification. Um, and so, yes. uh, so when I was, and I mean, you know, one of the phases was in the early 70s when my parents moved there, along with a lot of other um, young white people um, moving to Mount Pleasant in the 70s. And there are a couple other neighborhoods in D.C. where um, that white people were kind of, I mean, Mount Pleasant had been a white neighborhood, it was developed as a white neighborhood. It was, it was the entire neighborhood basically was subjected to racially restrictive covenants, um, barring uh, that barred property owners from selling or leasing their housing to anyone except for white people. Um, and that was the case up until the Supreme Court invalidated those covenants in 1948. So basically the first half of the 20th century, it, like many neighborhoods in D.C. and many neighborhoods in cities across the United States, was all white uh, by law. <laughs> um, and wow. so, but after... Yeah. There's a couple of things I'm thinking about. One, yeah. me coming from coming from Ohio, coming from Cleveland, Ohio, and it was sort of mm-hmm. an unwritten rule that black people weren't supposed to live on the west side. And so yeah. black people and Jewish people lived on the east side, and everybody else could live on the west side. Now, that, of course, has changed, but when we moved to the suburbs, we got we we went through holy hell. People writing mm. nigger on the sidewalk and edging our house and the whole nine yards. And so yeah, and and of course Mount Pleasant. I used to live in Mount Pleasant when I was a okay um, a, a much younger person. But by then Mount yeah. Pleasant had already been gentrified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's a yeah it's really interesting history. And there's actually the, the racially restrictive covenant thing is um. I mean, that was happening all over the country, but there's, there's a project that looks specifically at the history of these deed restrictions, the sort of race restrictions on uh, private homes and, and um, is, is mapping them throughout D.C. So there's this, if your listeners are interested, there's this really great project called Mapping Segregation in Washington, D.C., and you can go to their website. I think it's just mappingsegregationdc.org, but if you, if you do a search for something like that, you'll find it. Um, and it's this amazing website that's got these collections of maps that these researchers have created um, to show you which properties had these racially restricted deed covenants on them. Um, and so you can see that there's like whole neighborhoods that, yeah, were covered by these deeds, including Mount Pleasant. Um, and, wow. and so anyhow, um, so, so really interesting. But yeah, it was, that's right. It was written into these, this, like these, the code of these, you know, the, the documents, of these property documents. So it was definitely like using the law to create and maintain segregation. Um, 
But anyway, so in 1948, the Supreme Court finally said, okay, this stuff is not valid. Um, and so that's, and then in the 50s, you started to see, um, in the 50s is when Washington finally got a majority black population for the first time. Right. Um, and, uh, and then you start, start to see some pretty rapid racial change in well, the 50s couple, and 60s. Yeah. yeah. Along with that, so if you combine the ruling in 1948 with uh, the 1955 um, Brown um, versus yes, the Board of yes, Education. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You, com- you combine that, that, that led to the 60s and 70s where you start to see entire communities, you know, tr- transforming. Uh, I had a yeah. um, I had a cousin who used to live in Anacostia back in the day. He's no longer with us, and um, you know he he had you know um, he had a a town you know a townhouse, um, very nice townhouse, very nice quiet neighborhood. But when I was a child and I came to DC, there and this was we're talking about the 70s, the latter 70s, early 80s. It seemed like there was a sort of a silent understanding of where you, where black people lived and where white people lived. Yeah, and, yeah. And it, it really wasn't until adulthood that I saw anything beyond the usual tourist traps in the southeast. And by the time I came here to live as a, an undergraduate, because I I actually moved here in '89. 88, 80, yeah, something like that. In the latter, mm-hmm. latter 80s, I moved here, and um, I started making my way throughout the, 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 the city um, as a secretary and, and a night student. And one of the things that I noticed is that if you lived, if you lived 60 Street or below, you knew that you, you already knew that that was going to be majority black, if not all black, but it also meant that certain services weren't going to be available. Um, the grocery stores weren't going to be so hot. And you kind of knew that the rent was not going to be very expensive. And then there was an unspoken assumption that if you were on Connecticut Avenue, that black people didn't live on Connecticut Avenue. Right. And so, even without those laws, the yeah. culture was well in place. This is a very, this was, and in my opinion, still a very segregated place. But now you bring in gentrification, which really is one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to your to your book. And you t- start talking about um, the commons, you start talking about co-ops, because the apartment that I lived in you know, it was all, you know, renters, but next door, it was a co-op. And sure. you could you could see the difference in the upkeep. You could see the difference in the, in the energy. And these are black folk who bought their apartments pretty much. Oh, well, and that's, like, then that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's the story that's, yeah, that the book talks about. That's so interesting. What street were you on? Um, I was at, I was at Columbia. I was at 11th and Columbia. Okay. Um, okay. And I was, yeah. Yeah. You remember the, you remember the guy who was, who was going around the neighborhood shooting up people? I lived in, I lived in the, in the, in the midst of all of that. 
So it was always oh, an interesting God. way to yeah. think <laughs> oh my God! The, the, what was it? The, the I, shotgun, lo- the shotgun shooter, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I loved yeah. that neighborhood. I loved yeah. it. I was, you know, it was it was a couple of couple of blocks away from Georgia Avenue. I used to, um, there used to be some kind of Muslim sh- uh, vegetarian shop that I used to go to and get food, and I'd go to a dance class at Howard. And I take the bus to, to work. I was working at the NAACP, and then I go to go to UDC, and then I take the metro home. And you know, and it was it it was always I never really felt unsafe, but there was always energy where there was an assumption that DC would not be safe unless it was majority white, and I never really yeah. kind of understood that. I didn't grow up in the city. But I came to love living in the city. This yeah. is, this, this, you know, this, 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 there's something about being in your own neighborhood and not having to move to a space of the of the region where you have to have a car. And I didn't have a car then. Yeah. Yeah. So let's yeah, talk, totally. talk. Let's talk more about how you came because and how you came to what you came to because one of the other areas that I'm fascinated by is that. You talk about women. You talk about the feminist element in this. So let's get yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, so I, um, so I got interested in housing co-ops specifically, and, and just so the, um, you know, the listeners know, D.C. has some very um, progressive tenants' rights laws, actually. Um, and they yes, are um, were rather unusual, actually, in the, the um, strength of our tenants' rights here. Now, we do have a problem, which is those rights aren't always enforced, and people don't always know what their rights are, so, you know, it's not like, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, but we do have some, and those rights are being eroded. The real estate lobby is constantly trying to um, chip away at the rights that tenants have won, but, but we had a lot of really strong tenant organizing in the 60s and definitely in the 70s um, because there had been these waves of eviction and rents were skyrocketing. Um, it was before we had rent control, and so there was just, like, people were really freaking out. Um, and so there was a lot of organizing going on in response to that. And there were um, some interesting laws were passed to kind of try to prevent displacement in the city. And one of those laws gives tenants the right to purchase their buildings. Um, and basically the way the right works is that you, if your landlord puts your building up for sale, they have to give you um, the option to purchase it. And so you as a, a tenant then have to, if you want to try to purchase a building, you have to organize a tenants association. And of course you have to find the money to buy the building. Um, and, and the landlord is selling it to you at, with, at essentially market rate. So it's not like you're getting a particular deal on it. Um, but so, so often the, the way that tenants, the way that low income tenants can afford to, to use this right, to exercise this right to purchase their building is because the city has um, historically assisted them with financing. And so the city provides some, um, for instance, zero interest loans to a tenant association to help them buy the building. Um, So anyway, so there's been um, hundreds of tenants associations that have used this right to actually buy their building, and low-income tenants associations. Um, And so I got interested, and and I learned about this when I was working for an affordable housing um, organization in D.C. back in 2004, 2005, when I first okay. learned about this history of our, our co-ops that we have here. Um, and so 
I got really interested in them, and I started meeting a lot of the people who were some of the key leaders at a bunch of these co-ops around the city. Um, and I thought, this is amazing. These, these people who have, you know, have very little money, um, you know, have, you know, very little education, you know, just have been able to buy formal education, I should say, have been able to buy these buildings in, in many, you know, the, our gentrifying neighborhoods in Columbia Heights and Shaw, um, Columbia Heights and Shaw has where a lot of them in particular have, have been developed, um, have been able to do this. And then they own this little piece of the city and they are not moving anywhere. You know, they, um, they, they own it. Um, and now, and then the, the sort of the, the catch, though, is that they're limited equity co-ops, which means you only get a limited equity out of your investment into the co-op. So people tend to buy in for a very, very small amount, um, and that's because they're low income. So you might buy a share in the co-op. You know, your ownership stake in the co-op might be $1,000. Um, okay. it, it might be two or $3,000, but it's a very low amount. So you'll, you'll make that share purchase, then you'll move in, and you'll pay a monthly co-op fee which is the money that keeps the co-op going. So helps pay off its mortgage and pays for maintenance and, you know, your utility bills, all of that. Um, so I, have so a I, I do have a question. Yeah, I do have but a I do want to answer your women thing, but we'll come back to it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. So Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. How many, how many, how many co-ops are, are there in, in D.C. right now? Okay. That is such a good question, and it seems like a really, it is a really basic question that we should know the answer to, but we, we don't know the exact answer to it. It's about, it's about 100 is a conservative estimate. Um, the issue is that it's funny. Even though we have this really unusual law, um, and we've had all these tenant associations buy their buildings, the city has done a really poor job of tracking them. Um, and so when I was trying to do my research, one of the basic things I was trying to figure out was, how many do we have? You know, and and just kind of trying to build a database of the limited equity co-ops in D.C. Um, but I think it's – my estimate based on that research is that it's about 100, um, maybe a little more, co-ops and about – I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's about 3,200 units of co-op housing. Um, so it's not a okay. whole lot. It's, it's about – you know, it, it represents very affordable um, dweller-controlled housing for – you know, maybe, um, you know, it's not, it's for, not you know, for maybe 10 or 15,000 right. people. Right. Well, for, for, the, for the land developers of this town, um, that's a lot of land that they don't, they don't get to make a profit from. No, no, that's a very good point, yes. And believe me, they would love to get their hands on it, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. so because Absolutely. these co-ops are, are they're these limited equity co-ops, and so the, the tenants, they can't um, – at least for the for the for the life of the um, of the financing of the loan that they have from the city, they're not allowed to turn around and then sell it for market rate. So the idea is that it can be an affordable home ownership opportunity for people over multiple generations. Um, so it's an okay. interesting model. Okay. Um, yeah, it's an interesting model. So it's not a way to build wealth, you know. So it's this interesting, you know. And there's there's been debates over that. I mean, it's a it's a way to have a stable, affordable home that you have control over that's, um, you know, a nice stable place to raise children. Um, but it's not a way for you to make an equity, a financial equity gain, um, which is how homeownership is right. tends to be seen. Well, so that leads me to my next question. Um, I know that most homeowners, um, one of the reasons why they like owning homes is that it, it, it of course it, 
it shoots your credit up to, you know, really good numbers as long as you keep up with your with your note um, and pay your taxes. Um, so there's a couple of questions. If you are somebody who is low income and you you buy into um, a, a co-op, um, what does what benefits do these co-op owners gain from doing a, a co-op as opposed to the traditional, you know, pay your month on, on you know between the first and the fifth? And what happens to their their what happens to your status as a taxpayer? What happens? Yeah, good questions. Okay, so um, the benefits, you know, I was, that was actually one of the main things I was interested in, in asking people about. And so in the research, um, this was my dissertation, and then I turned it into the book. And so in the research, I really focused on 10 co-ops throughout D.C., um, and I did in-depth interviews with people who are co-op members there. Um, and I also looked at a few co-ops that had failed because I was really interested in seeing what are the challenges um, of, of running these things and keeping them going over the long term. Um, but, but so I was really curious about what the benefits were for people because I knew that they did not have a wealth-building benefit. Like, that was not part of what they got out of it. So given that, why did they do it? So the, the main reason people do it is because it's so affordable in terms of their monthly co-op payments. And what I found was that if you look at kind of the average rents for D.C., for a two-bedroom apartment, um, the co-op units in my kind of sample that I looked at, the average um, co-op fee, which is sort of the equivalent of rent in those co-ops, was half of the average rent for the city. And so these wow. are very affordable. So you would see like, you know, a two-bedroom unit in Columbia Heights and the co-op fee was, you know, $900 um, the monthly yeah. fee. Yeah, $1,000, you know. Right. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about what I'm paying right now, and I'm thinking, wow, I need to get in on this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, I know, exactly. And, and so you would see, and like, um, there were a couple of uh, my buildings were in Adams Morgan. Um, actually, just one was in Adams Morgan, I think. But you know, people would constantly talk about like how the location was so incredible. They could, it's like you were saying about being able to walk places, and you know, everyone could walk everywhere. Everything they needed was right there. Um, and their monthly payments were so low. Um, and so that affordability was really the number one most important thing for folks because it then also enabled people to, you know, a lot of people worked pretty low-paying jobs, like they were housekeepers or maybe they worked, you know, as a um, health aide, um, pr pretty low-paying work. Um, and so for those folks who earned very low incomes, the affordability, you know, they, their incomes are so low that, the, the co-op fee is affordable, but it's not like they had a lot of extra money left over to save or to spend on other things. But some people who had slightly higher incomes were able to save some money because right. their monthly housing fees were so low. Um, and some people were able to make different choices about their life, like, um, you know, take a job with fewer hours or, you know, be able to sort of rearrange their lives in a way that um, worked better for them because their affordability was so was so great. So the affordability was big. And then the other um, key benefits, um, one was having control over their space. That was really important for people. Um, and this is, you know, the physical space of the building, because when the buildings had been rentals, they had almost always been in really terrible condition. Um, and the landlords had just not made repairs. It had not kept the buildings up to code. And the buildings were really in pretty bad shape. And so 
when they got control over the buildings, the tenants were able to, now this cost money, but they were able to fix up the buildings in the way that worked for them. And so having that kind of control over the space was really important to them. Right. And also the social control, which was interesting to me. I mean, you know, people really liked, as a co-op, one of the things that you have the right to do is, you know, the co-op board has to approve any new members. And so you, people have to apply to move in and you have to accept them. Um, and the co-op board can say, you know, we, you know, they can make, very, make it very clear that they want members who, you know, um, are generally going to, you know, behave and follow the house rules of the co-op. They might have, they might have, they all will have written their own house rules, which might say things like no pets or, you know, um, no, no noise after 10 p.m., no smoking, exactly. Right. Um, and so they have that kind of control over how people are behaving in this space that was really important um, to people. And then the um, stability of the space was the third key thing I found after affordability and control. Um, just that people knew the building wasn't going to get sold out from under them, especially people who were trying to raise children, and just knowing that they could stay in that place and that they had this sort of stability was really key. And then the last thing that people talked about was community. They really felt like, you know, they built community um, through having this living in this co-op together and kind of having to run it together. And that was, that was the other big thing that, um, you know, kept coming up with how much work it was <laughs> to run these things. And right. that's where when you, you asked about women earlier, it's like, oh my God, these women are doing all the work of running these spaces. Right. And it also means so, that um, that also means that other things, you know, there are other things that, that, that usually kind of come up. You know, when I was growing up, um, you know, women in my neighborhood um, watch each other's kids and whatnot. I was a, I was a latchkey kid, uh, me and my brother. And, uh, you know, we would get off the school bus and we'd go to a neighbor, one neighbor or another neighbor. And, um, you know, they watched us when we were smaller, but then whenever we grew up, you know, you have your own key and you get in, but your neighbors were always looking out for you. And yeah. one of the things that I've, no- I've noticed um, as somebody who lives in a in a large complex is that, uh-huh. yeah, you sort of kind of know your neighbors, but not really. I yeah. people living on my floor, I I don't even know who they are. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't know who they are, but you know, it, it, but if you're in a in a co-op, that that's much different because you know you you're, you're participating fully. You're participating in the upkeep. You're participating in the entire culture, and that also means that you're not going to have um, weird things going on in, in your building. So that, right, right. That's um, the ideal, anyway. I mean, sometimes weird things do yeah. go on, but. <laughs> Well, it's it's not it's not on the same it's not on the same level, and so yeah. so I guess what uh, how does that bring up and you know how does that bring up a, a, a community? How did, what what impact does this have on on on, on communities through, uh, throughout the city? That is a really good question. Um, you know, one of the one of the co-ops. Let's see, and this is. Um, not actually the one of the 10 that I, that I profiled in the book, but one of the ones that I, I learned a fair amount about um, was in the Columbia Heights neighborhood. So, and just so for your listeners, so the Columbia Heights neighborhood was a neighborhood um, that had been really um, 
damage during the um, 68 uh, uprising or whatever term people prefer to use there, uh, but in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, rebellion, right? right? Okay, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so Columbia Heights was was heavily impacted by that. Um, There was a lot of uh, stores that were destroyed, a lot of retail was destroyed, um, and and then and just left to kind of rot by the city. I mean, it's rather remarkable how little was done to um, to go in there and really kind of address any of the issues in the neighborhood. Right. Um, and so, and so, so we had a, and, right, and exactly, in, exactly. I, right, and, right, and I lived. I lived in Columbia. I lived in Columbia. Yeah, if you were to live in the Columbia, I mean, that was, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. that was, that and was so, pretty, yeah. pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I could tell you that, yeah, in the early 90s, things were beginning to pick up, you know, yeah. and you, you, you right. had folks that were, that were coming in, but you had long-term residents. People kept up with their homes, but it was yeah. the storefronts. And yeah. some of the buildings that were still, um, you know, where you have the the the, land, the landlords and the and the property owners who really were not keeping up with things, and so yeah, it, um, it, it didn't help. It didn't help. So, right, yeah. right. And that was, I mean, and so this is one of the co-ops that I've, um, an interesting one was was in Columbia, a uh, rental building in Columbia Heights, and. In addition to the building not being in good shape, it was the block was also pretty dangerous. There was a lot of drug dealing going on in the block and a lot of violence. And um, mm-hmm. and there was um, and and there were there were actually two women who were tenant leaders in this building who really, you know, when the building went up for sale, they said, "No, we are going to stay in this building. It's our home." Um, but they also so they worked and they were kind of an amazing team because one of these women. Um, spoke only English, and the other woman spoke only Spanish, and yet they were able to oh, wow. to, lead, to lead this effort to buy this building um, and and enable the few tenants who were left to stay, and then to provide affordable, you know, um, safe housing for other people from the neighborhood, other families in the neighborhood. Um, but one of the things that they did was to really, as part of their whole organizing effort to buy the building, they were also really involved with. Um, anti-drug stuff on their block and really trying to drive Excellent. drug dealers off their block. Excellent. And so, right. yeah, so they really were, I mean, right. it's what you're saying. It, it was an effect on the neighborhood at, 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 as, a, as a whole. The fact that these women were organizing, you know, saw that this was their home, they were going to be there for the long term. Um, and so they were really organizing within the building, but also outside of it in the broader neighborhood to try to um, make it a place that would be safer for their kids. <laughs> So, um, and then there's other examples, interesting examples too. There was another co-op. Um, one of the co-ops that I looked at was a little unusual in that it was more of um, an intentional community. And a lot of the, okay. most of the co-ops are, I mean, it's sort of funny. You've got a bunch of random renters living in a building together. You know, they don't necessarily know each other very well. Like you were saying, you know, you might, you know, you don't necessarily know the people just because you live in the same building with them. And then you have the opportunity to buy this building, and then you're like, okay, let's do it. Well, then you kind of start to get to know each other a little bit. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and you um, sort of start to build relationships. But, you know, maybe you don't like everyone you're living with, and maybe you don't have the same values as everyone. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a 
hodgepodge of people, which I think is actually really interesting. Um, but there was one of the co-ops that started to be more intentional. So they got a group of people together who wanted to start a co-op together. Um, and that co-op was also much more oriented towards had, had their, they had an intentional community around social justice activism. Um, and they were actually originally, I think the original idea of that co-op was actually to be a space for black women specifically. Um, and so it was founded by a group of black women activists. Um, and then I think they realized, well, for one, that <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> it violates fair housing law to yeah. create, yeah. Uh, you know, a complex that, that where you explicitly say we only let black women live here. Um, and I think so. It, so they realized it was actually illegal. They couldn't do that. And, and then I think they also realized that they, you know, they themselves were a group of black women, but they did want it to be, you know, open to all. So anyway, that co-op now is largely um, black women and women identified people, um, but not entirely. Um, but they really have kind of this social justice um, uh, emphasis. And so they've done, I mean, I think more in the early years of the co-op, maybe than now, but they've, they've done a fair amount of organizing work in their immediate neighborhood. So they helped a, um, mm -hmm. there was a boys and girls club down the street from them that um, was going to get turned into condos and they helped organize to stop that from happening. Um, well, and it's, uh, it's interesting. So. Yeah, so it's interesting that you, you know, because I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about other cities. I'm thinking about mm -hmm. what happens in San Francisco, the Bay, uh, San Francisco, yeah. Oakland, the Bay Area. Yeah, um, I have yeah. a friend who lives in in in, in Oakland, and uh, you know, he owns his house, he and his wife. But he, here to tell you, um, it is very difficult in some parts of the country where you have, if you have a city that has already been quote unquote successfully gentrified, what that basically means is that um, there are very little ways in or the land developers have pretty much pushed out people, um, which is why you could look at um, cities like San Francisco, Seattle, um, parts, of, uh, parts of LA, um, I'm thinking, of course, of Manhattan. Look at what happened to Manhattan, and now look at what, what's happening to Harlem, um, where you have um, regular, everyday working folk who have been pushed out, and yet you have here in the D.C., I mean, everybody talks about, well, the rent is too damn high, and yet you have these small oases where you have regular folks um, who are still able to hold on and 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 hold on yeah. to the peace of the city, and of course, yeah. I'm thinking I mean, about um, the political uh, landscape. You know, when you push out poor folks and you push out working class folks, if you have nothing but millionaires, they're not even. These aren't even middle class folks anymore who right. identify these are millionaires. Um, that can have an impact on um who's sitting on the city council, that can have an impact on um, you know, the local politicians and their priorities. And so Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And so and I'm thinking about some of the work that you've that, that you've done that you've tried to get folk on, on campus 
to, to, to pay attention to. Um, what, what, do you th- what do you think um, this particular movement, you, you've had enough, you know, there's enough years have passed by so that we could see some, in, we can definitely see impact. What do you think yeah. um, this kind of action, social justice, and social justice and economics blend, what do you think it did to our political makeup, and how did it make it a bit different than some of the other um, urban centers in the United States? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I definitely think the tenants' rights movement in general here has had um, – has had a real impact on our politics and our local elected officials. Um, and, and, I, and I certainly worry about how our elected officials' priorities, you know, are changing um, now um, or, and potentially could change given the kind of yeah. changing demographics of the city. Yeah, I mean, it's like, and it's kind of ends up being a snowball effect. Like the more you have um, people whose, uh, you know, whose priority is, the city spending funding on creating new dog parks, you know, um, then, then those folks are going to be, you know, having their voices heard. Um, and I just think, you know, we've got a lot of needs in the city right now. So I, I worry about that, but I do think, you know, a lot of our, um, you know, a number of our, especially early kind of elected leaders came out of the tenants rights movement. And what's funny actually is that the current chair of the city council, Phil Mendelson came out of the tenants rights movement that he has a background as a tenant. Really? Um, as an organizer, oh, yeah, wow. and um, he was really involved in. Um, he lived in McLean that Gardens. Makes me which like is the, even more. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, he was. But like, okay, like, like he was smoke to the Senate, right? Well, he spoke to the Senate, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. One of, one of the reasons why I like him um, is because you know he's from Cleveland. He's from the East Side, East Side of Cleveland. He grew up in Cleveland Heights. And okay, um, I not know that. Okay, huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Cleveland's a union town, and so when he spoke right. to us, he spoke to us as a union man, and as somebody huh. who who seems to understand, um, you know, the working man's plight. And so right. I really was really impressed by that because, unfortunately, we we've, we've got a lot of politicians. They they may look the part. And they may, you know, they, they know how to they know they know how to sound like they're they're you know with the working folks. But the reality of it is, right. is that a lot of our a lot of our local politicians are in the pockets of these land developers. And oh, I'm big just time. not big time. Oh gosh, I'm so I'm so sick of that. And so yeah. that yeah. In, in that that impacts our you know it, 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 it impacts our, our 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 way of living in this city. Um, it impacts our university, of course. Yeah, um, big time. And, 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 right, and so that's that's a that's a good thing because we're going to be friends. Is, is, is Adam Corgan or, or he was? Well, he, okay, so Adam, he was. I know he was living in McLean Gardens, which is like weird, which is way up on Wisconsin Avenue, um, because they went through a whole um, organizing thing in the '70s, I think. I don't really know the full history of McLean Gardens, but it was one of the. There's a big organizing fight there um, at some right. point that he was a part of. So um, yeah, so I think that's where he sort of started starting getting involved in politics was through that organizing fight. And then you have someone like um, Frank Smith, who was the city council from Ward One for a long time before Jim Graham. Um, and Frank Smith also had come out of 
organizing, neighborhood organizing. I mean, he'd been part of um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, and he'd been living in Adams Morgan. And then there was this group that got started in the late 60s called the Adams Morgan Organization. And they were this pretty, uh, I don't know, innovative, interesting neighborhood group that was trying to do all sorts of inter interesting stuff. But part of what they were doing was trying to preserve affordable housing in Adams Morgan. Because Adams Morgan was one of these neighborhoods that saw some real serious gentrification in the 70s um, as like okay. sort of a wave of gentrification in some um, centrally located cities around the country in the 70s. So um, New York saw some of that. Boston saw that. D.C. saw it. Um, San Francisco. And, uh, and so there was a response there in Adams Morgan really trying to um, make sure that people weren't getting too displaced during that time. But yes, yeah, right. there's been some interesting you know, elected officials who have come out of this work. And I guess my hope is that we continue to, you know, we need to make sure we have some really strong um, housing people <laughs> on the city council, you know, people who really well, yeah. dedicated some time because to the this. Struggle, yeah, the struggle continues. I, I look at Georgia yeah. Avenue, for instance, um, yeah, and I, I look at the area around Howard. I look at, yeah. um, you know, I, I look, um, you know, I look at 14th. I look at 14th Street. Oh my God! Um, yeah, it, <laughs> insane. 14th insane. Street looks looks nothing like what you know when, when I was growing up. You know, look, yeah. I like having car. I like having Tarjay. You know, I like you know <laughs> yeah. that's that's nice. You know, I, I like having all of those those, 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 those nice things and, and whatnot. But where was all of that when, you know, when folk were, um, you know, when folk were, were, were not being pushed pushed out? The reality right. of it is right. that you still got poor folk living in those, in, in you know, in you know, in these in these neighborhoods in, in the city. You still have poor folk, working class folk, living on Georgia Avenue. Um, living um, uptown, but I mean, it, it just seemed like there was sort of a wave. On the one hand, I like um, I, I like seeing the city actually fix the potholes and, and, and yeah. actually pay attention to um, you know to all of the services. But I, I feel as though that's something that should be there regardless of the race or the social class of a of a person. Um, right, so right, totally. Something that, you know, something that I I'd like uh, this city to be a bit more or a lot more um, attentive towards. I mean, I don't know if you've had a chance to to, to go over the 11th Street Bridge. You know, remember the old 11th Street Bridge? You go over, and there was I have not yet. No. Yeah. Right. Well. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, I like the fact that there's a, there's a theater, uh, you know, the Anacostia uh, Theater, and I, I like yeah. the fact that she's got Yo-Yo Ma coming to the Anacostia Theater. Right, right, like right. That. Right, and you got wine bars. And so the thing about it is, is that it, it's not as if people, it's not as if there weren't people there before who could appreciate right. culture. There was. And in fact, yeah. when I was growing up, there was a local um, you know, there was a local collective, and they had, um, you know, they had theater there, and my my cousin was a part of it. And you wow. have, of course, the Frederick Frederick Douglass House and whatnot. Yeah, but absolutely. Seemed, right, but it just seemed it, it it seemed as though that 
that the only people who really mattered lived beyond 16th Street. Um, right. So, right. What, well, it's funny. Where you, I mean, it's like, I was just going to say, it's so like, you know, it's, it's not just that there's people in Southeast who appreciate culture and stuff. There's like so much of our city's rich culture has been created in Southeast, or, you know, um, Absolutely. So it's just, so, and it's totally know, ignoring and, that. It's crazy. Well, yeah, and, and, and of course, people who don't know the city or who just listen to, um, you know, listen to some of the uh, right-wing politicians would have you believe this, um, that, there's, that there was nothing there before gentrification, absolutely not true. And you right. have beautiful, beautiful homes and, and beautiful buildings all over um, Southeast in, in yeah, in Northeast yeah. for this, for that matter, and, yeah, and so right. my so I have a question for you. Where do you see this going? Um, this um, we're in, you know, we're in 2018. We're about to go, you know, we're we're we're, we're in a different age, um, yeah, for better or for worse. Um, yeah. And so where do you where do you see this this going? Is is this still a very active um, movement among the folk of, of D.C. Yeah, you know, I mean, there are still there are still tenants associations that are using this right to purchase to buy their buildings and turn them in, into housing co-ops. And so that is still happening in the city. Now, it can't, it's not happening very often because the city doesn't have the kind of money that it would need to help these tenants really buy their buildings. Um, you know, because housing costs, property values have gone up so much in the past 20 years, 15, 20 years. Um, but there are still our tenant associations um, who, are, who are trying to and succeeding in buying their buildings. And then there's still a lot of these co-ops that have been around a long time that are still ch- chugging along, you know, are still providing their affordable housing and, um, and are providing good places for people to live. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm, there's a city council task force that's working right now to, um, to try to uh, figure out how to best support the co-ops in the city right now, and I'm part of that task force. So we're working with various experts and representatives to kind of figure out oh, excuse me, uh, what we could do, what could the city could do yeah. Excuse me, um, yeah. to, to better support these co-ops. So, so there's definitely movement into the future and kind of trying to think about how do we support the existing co-ops and create new ones, because it really is one way to um, – preserve people's ability to stay in their neighborhoods. You know, they're already there in these rental apartment buildings. If, if we were able to right. find the money to enable them to buy their building, then it's not like you have to build a new building or buy, you know, some, some vacant land. I mean, you've got, you've got the building in place. You just need to find the money in the budget to kind of help that happen. Um, and it's right. And, in, and it's, right. it's worth it because it's, you, you know, if you, you're, yeah. So, but, but the other thing is that I think, I mean, the co-ops are part of the picture, but also there's a larger landscape of affordable housing that we also need to kind of continue to support. So, for instance, just regular old public housing, um, we are not doing very much to support that. I mean, we're doing, we're we're redeveloping public housing um, in such a way that's not always enabling public housing tenants to move back in once redevelopment happens. So that's a concern. Um, And then there's other... um, you know, there's how uh, we have housing vouchers that people can get. We don't have nearly enough. I mean, we have a 40,000 person, 40,000 people are on the waiting list for public housing and vouchers in the city right now. 
um, or as of this summer. Oh, my God. I was so, about to yeah. ask, and what, what? No, it's crazy. Right. It's crazy. So, 40,000 people. I mean, we only have like 700,000 people in the city. So 40,000 people is a pretty big percentage of their total district residents. Um, and those are all people who qualify for affordable, for, qualify for the voucher for public housing. So they've, they're on the waiting list because they've been vetted. They've gone through the application process. They, um, you know, they have the need for this housing. But we, the city actually has um, closed the waiting list now. You can't even get on the waiting list now because there's so many people on it and it's just, it's like a 10-year wait to get a voucher or a spot in the public housing complex. And so there's this tremendous need among low-income people for decent housing. So where are all those 40,000 people living? You know, they're people who are very poor. They don't have the income to rent on the private market, and yet we know they're not in public housing. We know they don't have a voucher because they're on the waiting list. So where are they? I mean, they're probably, they're not formally homeless, most of them, but they're probably, you know, living with a family member or staying with a friend or something, you know. Um, So so um, we have to do more to support that, too. Yeah. Right. So so what's happening here? Are, Are we seeing more in their quest for affordable housing ending up having to move outside of the outside of the district, moving to um, PG County, moving to moving to Virginia? What, what's happening? You know, yeah, I mean, that's definitely I, part of what we're seeing, yeah, is movement. Um, and a lot of I, that... And, and, and I'm paranoid. I'm, I'm paranoid yeah. in, in the sense that I get the, I get the sense that in some ways... Um, it's not really being discouraged. Folks just leave. Right. But of course, right. Again, right. If you basically just push out poor people, they have yeah. to go someplace. Um, and right. Right. so they end up on, they end up in, in, on the outskirts. They end up in Capitol Heights, which is PG County. Yeah. Um, they right. end up in Temple Hills and, you know, and, and, um, and they end up in a, in, a, in a lot of the apartments and whatnot. And so I guess this is how I see it. And this is something mm-hmm. that, I, that I had to really think about. I, a few years back, I, um, I visited uh, Quito, Ecuador. Oh, wow. City. Beautiful city. Cool. Yeah. Um, this was for a conference. And we got a chance to have a nice meal on, on, on the outskirts near um, you know, one of the museums that's on the outskirts. But you know what I noticed as we were riding, <laughs> it, right, you know, it, it took us on a bus to where we needed to go. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I noticed is that we had a lot of poor people living on the outskirts. No ah. electricity, no running yeah. water. Um, yeah. And, you know, and and to me, it made me think because I, they had a chance to talk with some folks who've also traveled, and there's a sort of a commonality where you have those who can afford um, to live in the city. They get to live in the city, and the poor live on the outskirts. That's the way it yeah. is in London. That's the way it is yep. in Paris. That's the way um, it is in, um, in all over South, South America, and it seems to be something that's very common. And we, we definitely see that with Manhattan. And yep. um, and I'm feeling as though that's what's happening here, where yeah, people 
the only people who get to enjoy public transportation, um, get to enjoy, um, you know, connections with all of the the innovations and all of the um, the, the lovely um, innovations are people who can afford to live in the city. And, of course, that yeah. leads to some a very different political um, environment, a very different political climate. I don't yeah. think that's the same. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think, and it's, yeah, and it's, you know, it'll, you sort of think about, well, are we, are we going to see some resegregation here, you know, where we do see more um, of a white central city and a, you know, and, and a wealthy central city. Um, and then you yeah. see, right, you see well, people of color and poor people around the edges, right. and we already for sure see that. And I think, yeah, I mean, I would, um, I would like to see more research actually on um, the movement of people out of D.C., you know, and where exactly they're going and why they're going there, that kind of thing, because there's certainly, everyone sees it happening, but then it's like, okay, it would be nice to have some more, like, hard numbers on that, you know, um, to kind of right, right. get a better sense of well, it. But it's means, definitely going on, yeah. yeah. So that leads me to my next question. Um, where do you see your research going? You have this particular, you've, 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 you've got a firm um, foundation here. And so where do you see um, your work branching out? Um, because this is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning, right? Right, 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 totally. Um, yeah, and that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, one thing I'm really interested in is looking more at the history of, and I'm interested in people's attempts to um, have uh, collective kind of community control over land, um, and particularly urban land, and how people try to do that together. Um, and so one of the things I'm interested in is looking more into the history of that in D.C. Um, and how various, because there's been a lot of really innovative organizing that's happened here over the years. So I'm interested in kind of diving more into that organizing work and seeing what people were able to do. Um, and so I'm interested in doing more historical research there. Um, so that's one thing. And then I'm also interested okay. in... You know, one of the things, so in the book, and, um, you know, it's called Carving Out the Commons, and the idea is really thinking about what are the commons, you know, thinking in terms of a resource that people kind of collectively manage for their survival, you know, this sort of living off the commons, this idea that there's this um, resource that people can use uh, to sustain their lives. They can't necessarily buy and sell it on the open market, but they can, they can use it to kind of support their, their everyday life needs. Um, and so I'm interested in thinking about other forms of the commons that exist in cities. Um, and, and one of the things that I really came out of my research was um, just the, as we mentioned before, just the kind of the work that's involved of these collective enterprises and, um, and how it can, it can be hard to kind of learn how to work together over time to kind of keep this thing going. And so one thing I'm excited about actually is thinking about how could we at our university, for instance, um, do more in our classes to kind of, I don't know, offer, is there a way we could like teach and learn how to work together in the kind of way that you need to work together to um, 
save your housing in a gentrifying right. city. Right. Um, or to, or to organize in other ways, to, you know. Right. Right. And I was just about to sort of ask because I um, I was doing a little search on on YouTube. That's, uh, YouTube is my it, YouTube is my 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 entertainment. I don't own a TV. Yes. <laughs> and. Uh, that's a, that's another conversation altogether. But, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really I, I could care less. But but one of the things that I noticed is that um, it, one of the news stations did a piece on UDP, you know, um, beginning to to look at um, at housing, and I know that um, that oh. we had a limited. Number. I, I guess some of our international students, some of our athletes, you know, have, um, you know, have housing, and apparently, it's, right, it, right, it seems to, right, it seems to be controversial. Um, it, there seems to be sort of an unspoken understanding. Okay, we we'll, we'll let UDC be here, but we don't want these people from the other side of town living here. Yeah, it has yeah. that kind of that kind of energy, and yet our mm. students. Um, are coming, they're coming from Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. Oh, totally. So a lot of God, students, yeah. Right, right. And so a lot of our students really are in need of affordable housing. Oh, big fortunate. time. Big time. It, yeah. It, 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 I, was, I was fortunate in the sense that when I lived here back in the day, you know, when I was an undergrad, I think I paid $600 a month for my, uh, for my one bedroom. Yeah. $600. Six hundred, yeah, right? And uh, right. <laughs> you know, heat, heat, heat included, steam, heat included, and I, yeah. and I was, you know, I used to sweat bullets sometimes trying to, we trying to figure out, oh my God, am I going to have the the rent money? You know, I really right, wasn't right. making a lot of money back then, and yeah. and now, yeah, uh, it, you know, if you're a student and you are attending UDC, um. I don't care what side of town you're on. Yeah. You're not going right. to pay less than, you know, fifteen hundred, seventeen hundred. Right. It's it's yeah. it's pretty steep. And you know, yeah. there's a lot of folks, you know, they may be living with their parents, but a lot of them aren't. Right, and exactly. So exactly. I, yeah. So what would you what would you suggest? I mean, I'm I'm I I'm curious as to how you've been able to um, infuse this work into your um, into your courses. I, I ran across your webpage, and I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> you really well, want it!" It's so, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, you know, it's funny. I haven't really um, used the book in my classes yet because the book just came out in March, and so it would have been this semester, I guess, would have been the first time that I could have used it. So I haven't used the book itself, although I've, I've used. Um, I have an article um, that came out in the Journal of Washington History that I have, have had my students read as part of my D.C. history class. Um, but, you know, that's one thing I'm trying to figure out is, yeah, how do I in, infuse more of these ideas about um, housing? And, you know, when we, when we, in my D.C. history, when we talk about the history of sort of organizing for affordable housing in this city, I, I draw, you know, my research when I talk about it. But, but this is, yeah, and I'm still kind of trying to figure that out. Like, how do you... Um, take these ideas, the sort of rich history of community organizing that we have in the city, and how do you sort of make students aware of that um, and get them excited about it? And I think they are excited to learn that there's been 
lots of low-income people who have fought for their rights and won in the city. You know, that is really exciting. So I guess one thing that I did do actually this past spring um, in my global studies class is I, the theme of the class was eviction in global perspective. And so we really looked at okay. the phenomenon of eviction um, and kind of how eviction impacts, um, really how it impacts women actually in particular um, around the globe. And then my students um, were all required to participate in this eviction awareness work that a local organization is doing. So they went out and um, knocked doors um, in communities around the city where people are experiencing high rates of eviction and talked to people about their, their rights as tenants. Um, and so that was a nice way to kind of involve students in some great organizing the work that's going on right now. Um, but yeah, right. I really want to think about how to keep doing that kind of stuff. And I'd love to talk to you more about it too. You know, maybe there's ways that we could brainstorm, you know, I don't know if there's things you're doing in your classes that I could also piggyback on or, you know, something so that students are having experience well, in one I mean, class that I, kind of dovetails right, with right, another, right. you know. A lot of the stuff that I do, um, it is in it, it is in many ways uh, sort of a branch off, and um, uh-huh. a branch off of of my my book, which is not, yeah. which is it's not it's not quite out of it, but it's darn near close darn near close to it, and and part of it is I probably need to get another publisher for my next book, which is something that I will be doing, but uh-huh. um, cool. one of the <laughs> yeah well actually one of the things that I one of the things that I, I I I think that one of the challenges that I have is being able to um, to find materials, being able to find um, stuff, so to speak, research mm-hmm. that actually connects with our students who are really yeah. unique in so many different ways. Um, yeah. And I've come to the conclusion that the best way to do that includes yourself. You've already done it. You've already done it here. This is, this is one very in, in, important piece of the puzzle because your rent, your notes, your house notes, you know, that's, that's, yeah. you know, that yeah. carves out so much of yeah. one's existence in this day and right. age, and that can have an impact right. on everything else. And right. I can tell you, as somebody, you know, who's had her own challenges, um, that that can um, that can it can often disrupt your your other your you know your your other work if you if you're an oh, artist. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. You know, Gosh. I mean, how do artists? I mean, how do artists survive in this city? And, and oh yeah, so that's a huge think, right, right. Yes, right. That's a this is this is a huge piece. And yeah, so yeah. I'm actually thinking, you know, I'm actually thinking that um, I think it's a matter of just getting folks who are um, who teach a similar population of folks and who mm-hmm. have similar concerns coming together and being able to. Um, to talk about that question, and it may be a matter of the question itself being researchable. Um, I have a friend yeah. of mine who's, who's a, who, who teaches at a um, community college up 
um, up in uh, Rhode Island, and mm. that's actually something that he's he's working on. He built an African American lit course, and wow. he's he's a he's an he's an Italian American, and he went to UConn with me, and he got the same treatment as I did. Why? Because he had an interest in writing about literature that was not considered to be, at least according to the, the at least according to those professors that we were dealing with, uh, was mm. not considered to be, um, you know, high end or high culture. Right. And so, right. Right. You know, there's there's a perception that there's a perception that if you are writing about folks who are not part of the privileged set that your work does not, you know, won't, you know, right. won't stand the test of time. And I, I tend to right. disagree um, yeah. fervently. Yeah. And so yeah, I absolutely. think it really is a matter of, you know, it, it really is a matter of folks who have a similar um, interest in social justice, um, have a similar interest in actually um Engaging with students um, and seeing students as folks who are going to take over where we leave off. Yeah, we won't right. be here forever. And right. so that I think is I think that, that that's probably um, probably key. So I think you and I definitely need to you know put our put our heads together. I tend to yeah. do lit, but I also do other stuff. I do cultural studies. Yeah, and so, yeah. Well, and and it's nice to right. do a multidisciplinary thing. Yeah, totally. Right, and I think that it really is about you know figuring out well what is the what is the what are the common threads. Um, right. Exactly. The that we're teaching. Right. The sizes that we're teaching um, students who come from an urban perspective. We are also um, we're also doing work that has you know has value in you know in our in our communities. In other words, what I see a lot of in academia is I see people I do see um some folks. Well, yeah. I'm not gonna say all. But I see some folks, they pump out books, you know, they usually do it for this, you know, publisher parish. But they're really right, not right. they're really not interested in being connected to Communities, they don't, they're really not that vested in it. And so, if your right. if, if your idea of community, and you know, are the are the folk who you know wear the nice tweed jackets and whatnot and show up at conferences, <laughs> uh, right? And, and that's been, that's that's not because you know we we all we have yeah. the conferences. I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but if that's the only priority, if that's right, if you right, don't right. have any vested interest in actually seeing how what you do can have lasting impact on the collective. Yeah. Me, you're in the business for the wrong reason. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. You, you know, you're, you're one of the reasons why folks see at, uh, folks in academia as, as just being out of touch. But I see the yeah. work that you do, um, the work that my friend does, and I see the work that I do. Is actually yeah. having, um, you know, long term, um, long term impact, or at least long term impact potential, and I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, 
how do you apply it into the classroom? I think that the model of publishing and even, you know, the model of publishing and actually using that in the classroom. You know, some people yeah. say, okay, well, textbook. Not that, you know, not anymore. It's also digital. Yeah. And yeah. also being able totally. to, to, to relate. And so, for instance, what we're doing right now, you know, that's part, yeah, you know, exactly. that, that, that also has potential. Being able to do talks um, in, and being able to use social media to be able to reach folks, because that's where our students are at. Our students yeah. are, you know, they, they, you may not necessarily see them wandering around in the bookstore, but it doesn't mean that they're not reading. They are. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. And so they may not necessarily um, turn on PBS, but it doesn't mean that right. they're not con- uh, getting connected to what the issues are. They just find it right. a different way. And so it's right. really just a matter of using all of those, those tools and, and finding different ways of, of, of reaching them. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. So I think, I, I, I don't know, what do you think? I think we talked our ears off. We've talked for yeah. I mean, I think yeah. I, I guess we're about out of time, but it's it's been really fun to talk about this stuff with you. And like, I definitely want to learn more about your work and read your work too. Because I mean, I think it'd be cool to keep connecting. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and you know, and I've got essays that are floating around, but you know, I'm I'm actually yeah, okay. working. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm actually you know. Um, I've got a few things that are that are that are floating about, um, and I don't know if you, if, if you're aware. Uh, me and Latanya, Miss uh, Rogers, we're, we're actually working on a digital humanities project, and we're oh, going to cool. have a um, yeah. So we're going to we're, we're going to be, be right back here on on you know on this this show, and so you're welcome to call in, and we can just have a yeah yeah yeah. Here. Absolutely. So I'm awesome. gonna, I'm, definitely, I definitely want to keep you in the loop. I definitely want to bring you back on uh, back on the show, um, especially with all of the community work that you're doing. Um, I think that more attention is needed. More attention. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally. And so totally. Um, we didn't get any calls tonight, but it doesn't mean that won't happen the next time. Uh, part yeah. of the maybe is that it's. Rush hour. Everybody's, you know, rush right. hour. And I <laughs> right. think this was supposed to be some sort of national day of mourning, but BC didn't really do anything. Oh, God, that's right. Weird. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> you know. And so, yeah, and, you know, and, and you know, condolences to the, to, you know, to the Bush family, you know, um, you know, and, and, and whatnot. And so um, we're going to end this at this particular point in time to my audience. Um, who is listening and who may upload this later on. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Amanda, for uh, for joining me this evening. And uh, we will be back. Um, so my next show should be um, in about a week. And so I'm anticipating, unless there is a change in schedule, uh, my next guest will be a return guest from the first show of the second season. President Mason and Carl Moore will be coming to talk about spoken word poetry, <laughs> believe it or not. Both That's so cool. of these gentlemen 
are creative writers, and they definitely have something to say about um, the spoken word. They definitely have something to say about rap. They definitely have something to say about, um, you know, even as they do the very hard work that they do, that they still take the time to be, um, you know, creative, use their voices, um, use, um, you know, use their wit, so to speak. And that I find to be absolutely, um, you know, absolutely fascinating. And so I'm looking forward to that. And so until then, have a great evening. And thank you, audience, for joining us. Good night. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night.